Welcome to Biopics Mostly Suck, the podcast where we provide the true story behind movies based on a true story. Today, we'll talk about the movie Cadillac Records, which is about the founding of Chess Records, the recording studio which gave us Chuck Berry, Howlin' Wolf, Buddy Guy, Willie Dixon, Little Walter, and Etta James. The film stars Jeffrey Wright as Muddy Waters, Adrian Brody as Leonard Chess, and Beyonce as Etta James. For this episode, I took a trip to Illinois to hang out with Joel Tarpinion. Joel is a blues musician and performer in the Chicagoland area, and he's also my cousin. He currently plays as a solo act called Just Joel, but he has also played with the Blues Daddies, JC and the Road Kings, and Jiggle the Handle. He is currently developing a new band to focus on blues rock. Since we were only an hour away from downtown Chicago, we took a drive down to Chess Records to take part in one of their tours. You can hear us talk about the tour and how much we enjoyed it. In fact, we encourage everyone, if you're in Chicago, go pay a visit to Chess Records. It's a historic studio, and the tour was a great amount of fun. The movie about Chess Records, Cadillac Records, scores a 7 out of 10 on the Internet Movie Database. It scores a 66% from Rotten Tomatoes, and it gets a 65% score from Metacritic. On this podcast, we're going to give our own rating to Cadillac Records as entertainment and also as a medium for delivering the facts. It's what we do here. If you're ready, let's get started. If not, just hit pause. We'll still be here. Well, this ought to be interesting, to say the least. You know, after seeing the movie the second time, it was, uh, it raised, you know, we could have nitpicked the crap out of that. I mean, we could have paused and gone crazy as far as that went, you know, on every little thing, but I guess that would have made this thing like th- three days long to actually dissect this movie you know, to do so. so. Yeah, Cadillac Records definitely gave a lot of material if you want to fact check on things, but we'll get into the fact checking in just a little bit. Yeah. But first, Cadillac Records is the story of Chess Records. Which it's interesting because the the director, Darnell Williams, uh, I'm sorry, Darnell Martin is her name. Uh, she said she didn't call it Chess Records because she wanted to focus on the artists, the people who brought the music in, rather than the two brothers. Oh, well, that makes sense. That makes sense, except uh, what's interesting is she packs so much in there, you really don't get a sense of anyone. Well, there's there was a lot of gaps, you know, as far as that went, you know. Personally, I feel Cadillac Records to be a very frustrating movie in a way because I think the performances were great. I think Jeffrey Wright was incredible as Muddy Waters. Uh, I really, really like the guy who played Howlin' Wolf. I thought he was fantastic. Moe's death makes a great Chuck Berry. Yeah, agreed. But the problem is you didn't find out any why of anyone. Yeah, you know, I agree with that too. And, And it just hopscotched all over. Uh, I was thinking what probably would have been great, and I don't know if some of this has to do with the interest level about chess records as opposed to other labels, for instance, because if you hear Diana Ross and the Supremes, what do you think? I don't think chess. No, Motown, right? right. So there's an instant label association to the artist. Or even Stax artist, Rufus Thomas. You think Stax. I don't know if chess has that same association with people. I, yeah, I agree. I don't. I, I didn't didn't think so. I think if there were a greater association, this probably would have made a really good miniseries. Yeah, because you would have had you would have had the the context of chess studios, but you would have also been able to delve deeper into the lives of these artists. Right. Some of which is much more fascinating than anything they put on screen. And unfortunately, there's a lot that wound up being made up in the movie. And I find this movie so frustrating because the performances are good. The musical performances by the actors are really great. Uh, I've seen this movie three times now, twice with you, once before. But what I have found is usually when I have researched and identify liberties taken in a movie and I'm watching something and I can tell it's just not true... 
for me, it usually diminishes the enjoyment of the film. And I find Cadillac Records to be very frustrating because I know what's not true in it, and yet I can't help but still enjoy the film because of the performances and because of the music. Oh, yeah, you always wanted to look to the next minute of the movie, even though it was kind of a fantasy, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Um, I mean, when you like if you start going back and fact-checking it, it's it was... Uh, Again, there was a lot of a lot of holes in the story. I guess if you didn't know better, it would have just, you know, you would have just sat through it and watched it to the end, and that would have been that. But, it, you know, the fact-checking kind of, you know, you start checking into it, and it's uh, nothing nothing lined up, you know, basically. Oh, once you took a look at it, no, nothing did. So since we keep coming back to the fact-checking, I think we've set up the movie enough at this point. I found it really enjoyable. Oh, I did too. Uh, on a scale of one to five, just as a movie, liberties aside, facts aside, what would you grade it as? Three as and a half. Piece? Three and a half? Yeah. Yeah, I think I'd go the same. Yeah. I'd go three and a half on entertainment. Yeah. The actors did a great job. I mean, the story was good. You know, what you, what you don't know kind of makes that story even better. You yeah. Know? And they had some really great actors. In fact, some of my favorites were in this. Jeffrey Wright, I always love in anything he does. Eric Bogosian, I've been a fan of for years and years and years since he was doing his one-man shows yeah. on Broadway. In fact, do you ever see Sex, Drugs, Rock and Roll? I have not. Oh, he did some really, really great one-man stuff in that. Have you ever seen the movie Talk Radio? I have seen that. Oliver Stone. Oh, that was the director of that picture? That was, that was an Oliver Stone picture. Okay. And that's loosely based on a story of Alan Berg, okay. who was a Denver talk show host who kept amping up the rhetoric and then was killed Ooh. loosely loosely based on a true story but he did that as a one-man show originally as well i'll have to look into that yeah i've always loved eric bogosian's work vincent d'onofrio shows up and is credited just as mississippi dj right and i love the accent he has in there too yeah muddy water Waters. yeah it's over enunciation <laughs> <laughs> yeah Adrian Brody, I think that was a good role for him, too. That was a good role. Yeah. That was a good role. So the and movie starts out by saying that it all started with two men. Now it says it starts in 1941, and they say the two men are Leonard Chess, who was running a junkyard at the time, and, and they say the other man is a sharecropper, which ends up being Muddy Waters. But those weren't the two men who really started Chess Records. Yeah, I was surprised that Phil was never even mentioned. No, Phil Chess was Leonard's brother, and they started Chess Records together. And the movie leads you to believe that the first recording that Muddy did was with Chess, but that wasn't quite the case. And they also introduced the character in there, the woman who does what she calls the race records. Yeah, I, I, I wasn't sure her whole role in the thing. Like, she barrels up and mentions what she does, and then wasn't much more her character and then she's there and she's upset when he pays yeah throws a bribe to vincent d'onofrio's yeah, character to the mississippi dj to play muddy's music and said i'll never i never bribe so there's a whole lot of bullet pointed stuff going on there so let's go ahead and take a look at what happened leonard and phil chess were immigrants to the united states and they came from um oh, i'm blanking on where they come from might have to put this at the end was it poland i believe it was poland yeah. yes it was poland and they were Jewish as well. Yes. It's often cited that the reason why they could identify with the blues. Yeah, the, the strife of the black man was because they came from uh, persecuted people as well. Correct. They could understand where the blues were coming from. Leonard Chess worked in a junkyard with his father. And he got tired of arguing with his father about how the business should be run. So he opened a couple liquor stores. He made money on the liquor stores. And... He wound up opening a club called the Macombo, Macombo, which was the lounge that they show in the film. He started recording the acts who appeared at the Macombo. He wound up meeting Evelyn Aaron, who is the redhead who's portrayed in the movie. Yeah, that made the, the race records. So Evelyn was running Aristocrat Records with her husband, Charles. Leonard bought a stake in the label, brought his brother Phil into it, and then the Aaron marriage dissolved. And Evelyn wanted out of the label. So in the movie they show, she was upset about the payola. She wasn't involved in that because she wasn't on the road talking to the DJs. Right. It was Leonard and Phil who were on the road talking to the DJs and selling the albums. 
So she wanted to have the label. Phil and Leonard bought the label from them. And then Aristocrat Records became chess. Became chess because now they had the insurance money and they also had a loan from their father because he was renting apartments to African Americans mm-hmm. who were in the area. So the big question is why wasn't Phil in the movie? Yeah, exactly. I, it's beyond me. I would imagine that he had to be as an interesting a character as his brother being part of it. I, I have, uh, that's, a, that's a darn good question. Well, because in real life, he did the production. Mm-hmm. I mean, we see Leonard selling albums uh, or bribing DJs as well. But, <laughs> but uh, and he was doing that in real life. The payola was just rampant at the time. Yeah, it was part of the business. It was part of the business. But it was Phil who was actually doing the production, which we see Leonard do. I haven't been able to find a solid reason why Phil was not portrayed in the film other than he was alive and well at the time the movie was made and living in Arizona. So the only thing I could figure is they probably couldn't secure the rights to tell his story. Well, that, that would probably be it where he didn't, you know, he didn't want to be mentioned in it at that point. Yeah. Because when they said, uh, this is a story of two men, I figured that was going to be about the brothers, the chess brothers. And then, then the scene shows that, you know, um, muddy in the fields in, in Mississippi in, uh, I, I would have thought when they said this is a story of two men, the first thing I would have thought was the Chess Brothers. That's what I would have thought as well. But no, you kind of have Leonard's character doing double duty for the brothers. And then you have Muddy Waters' character kind of filling in a little bit of the Phil role there as well. Yeah, It wasn't Muddy Waters and Leonard who started the label. It was Phil and Leonard Chess. In the movie as well, there's a whole bunch of timeline issues <sighs> that are taking place. Yeah. And there's a whole rundown here. It starts out in 1941, uh, and that's pretty much accurate. But throughout the movie, it's a little difficult to tell where we are in time. Because other than saying 1941, they really don't give any other markers. Yeah, beyond that date. To what's taking place. And within a few minutes, we jump ahead nine years, and suddenly we're at the El Macombo burning down, which was 1950. Yeah. Because we have Muddy Waters, who recorded with Aristocrat in 1946. The movie shows Muddy Waters finding little Walter on the street, plays with him, then brings him to chess, when in fact, uh, little Walter joined Muddy's band in 1948. So two years after Muddy Waters was already recording at Aristocrat. But it's true, and it's referenced a little bit in the movie, that chess records would not allow Muddy to use his working band. They had their own session They had their own session players, and they wanted to use those guys. So when Leonard in the movie makes the reference that, except for that crazy harp player, you can't bring him, that's a reference to that actual fact. Okay. Combo was open from 1946 to 1950. So there were four years going there where they were bringing acts in and recording, which set them up well for Aristocrat and also for uh, Chess Records. But other than that, whole bunch of timeline issues going on and we'll just go ahead and run through them real quick here we got in the movie alan freed who father of rock and roll uh, who really did integrate the airwaves which is referenced in the movie Mm -hmm. he really did put rock and roll out there bring black artists forward uh, especially chuck berry but the movie shows alan freed introducing the beach boys surfing usa alan freed was already out of radio by that time (laughs) so he couldn't have he, he couldn't have introduced that At the end of the movie, they show Leonard Chess dying of a heart attack in 1967. And that's referenced because that's the same year Muddy Waters and Willie Dixon traveled to Europe, which is, I think you mentioned yesterday, was the start of the British bands. Yeah, British invasion. And I was asking you yesterday, why did those British bands suddenly take to blues music? I think when when those artists went there, that was their introduction. And, you know, it was like, that was their drug, you know? I mean, it was infectious. That's why guys like Clapton and them dug all the old blues players like B.B. Well, like, they get to finally see these guys, and those are their idols. And then they start playing that music, Zeppelin playing their music. You know, they did their version of whatever. But I think that's that was it, you know? But uh, Chuck Berry, a lot of those artists, they were more successful in European countries. Yeah. Than than uh, than here after a certain period of time, like there was no desire for him. Like the blues dropped off here, 
you know, when rock was coming into play. And uh, so they, they went over to Europe, and it was still a big thing. You know, Chuck Berry was huge in, like, Germany still in, like, the 60s and early 70s. He was huge. And uh, I think that's that was why it was so infectious there. And then that's they fair. come here because, you know, they can make a resurgence. So, six, And the period correctness of some of the instruments as well was kind of kind of crazy because they show Muddy when he first shows up in Chicago and uh, he's sitting on the streets and he's uh, he's playing a guitar with a humbucking pickup in it in 1941. Uh, they didn't come out with the humbucking pickup till 1950. Oh. Yeah, I mean, but I mean, no lay person would have caught that. Uh, being a musician, I picked up on that right away, you know, uh, that it was just... You wouldn't have converted it because guys, it was guys like Les Paul and Leo Fender that would have been the guys to do that. I mean, they weren't the guys making the pickups, but I mean, there was a lot of period correctness issues going on in there too. So. But you also picked up uh, a little bit about Muddy Waters' guitar at the beginning. Yeah, I mean, those are old K guitars, and that's what like Johnny Cash played old K's. Those were like the guitars of the time. But you know, when he comes to Chicago, he's got a different guitar. I'm thinking, you know. For a poor sharecropper, the guy's got a heck of a guitar collection going on for the 40s. And, you know, like I said, it's just something I picked up on. It's probably not something a lay person would have picked up on. But But you also picked up in the scene where Muddy Waters is in the bathroom. Oh, yeah. He's got a brand new telly in a perfect case. And he he pulls the telly out and he puts it around his neck and he walks out on stage. And when he's out on stage, he's playing a Les Paul gold top. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, uh, what happened in the transition from the bathroom, man? You know what? Yeah, that was kind of different. You know, I would have thought that they would have had a little more, you know, they would have been a little more uh, in tune to what the next scene was going to be than to, you know, and keep it correct. But, hey, I'm not a producer and or a director. so That's why we're doing this. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> At the end of the movie, we have Leonard Chess dying of a heart attack right after he packs up his things and leaves Chess Records. And the Willie Dixon voiceover says it couldn't let him go. And he's shown slumping in his car, just half a block from Chess Records, which I don't know if you notice when he looks in the rearview mirror at the Chess Records sign, mm-hmm. it's looking correct rather than reversed. Oh, no, I did not do yeah. that. <laughs> I was more looking at Adrian Brody's eyes because it was, uh, the you know, the character of Leonard Chess. I was more looking at his eyes because I'm waiting for the moment that he's actually looks like he's deceased. You know, it just looks like he dropped off because he looks like he's have, struggling to breathe. And then all of a sudden he's just kind of leaning and hits the curb and that's it. And know? this has got the fish eyes. Yeah, I guess, I guess I, that's what you could call it. In reality, he did die just a couple blocks away from Chess Records. But it was a year later and he was on his way to a meeting at what was called voice of the negro wvon which is an am radio station here in chicago and uh, now known as voice of the nation and that was a radio station that was created by leonard and phil chess in order to pull together according to the station's website the best black radio talent who could galvanize all of black chicago hmm. yeah, so uh, obviously phil and Leonard chess were very tied to the community very mm-hmm. interested in seeing people rise up, mm-hmm. which was fantastic during that time. We have a montage of photos that takes place a little early <laughs> in the film where we notice that there is uh, a shot of records in a bin and leader cards. And one of the leader cards says Star Wars theme, mm-hmm. which would have been impossible in the early 1950s. You know, just before you picked up on that about the ELO cover. <laughs> yes, there's an ELO it, it goes, cover, too. That, that's it goes from color to black and white. And I, I don't know if that was to like, they didn't do it fast enough to obscure the cover of the ELO album or what, but it's like that, that whole shot goes black and white and like, you can't pick up on what those, the leader card and or the album cover looks like. But yeah, that was, that was pretty interesting in itself. And in the film, chess record seems to open in 1954, 1955. Again, they really are not giving markers other than 1941 at this point. And it actually opened in 1957 is when it opened. Now, my favorite timeline in the movie is this five-minute segment that we have where Chuck Berry is in a car with some women, and he hears Surfing USA. And he realizes it's his tune, Sweet Little Sixteen. Yeah, it's a plagiarism thing. But, and he's still complaining about it in the chess studio. And two officers come in. And they arrest him for violating the Mann Act, mm-hmm. which is 
taken a minor across state, state lines. lines. Cross state lines. So we know this is 1959 because that's when that took place. It was enacted, yeah. Well, Surfing USA didn't come out until 1963. So it would have been impossible for him to be complaining about plagiarism suit. Plagiarism <laughs> at the time he was arrested for the Mann Act. And then the Rolling Stones show up to the studio. Yeah. Which took place in 64, 19- I believe. 64. Yeah. Took place in 1964. And then the movie shows Elvis Presley entering the army on the television. Which was back in the 50s. 56. Yeah. 56 to 58 was his army time. They show Barry being released from prison, which actually would have been 1963, which means he would have heard, he he could have heard Surfing USA. Yeah, behind bars. Behind bars. (laughs) And that's when he would have discovered the problem there. And then it jumps back to 1960 with Etta James recording at last at last mm-hmm. which there's just whiplash going on here on the timeline yeah yeah like i said fantasy is a wonderful thing it is <laughs> it is and if you don't know any of it yeah then you can go with it and still just enjoy the film yeah can't call them out on it now man it's already in the can it's already in the can yeah now, I, I think for the rest of the film, it might be easier to just go person by person mm-hmm. and talk about the artists that are portrayed. Because for me, I think some of the most fascinating things about the artists are the things they did not include in the movie. And it's a shame because there's things that were made up for dramatic purposes that I think they could have taken that time and presented the people in a way that pays a greater tribute to them. Yeah. So let's start with Muddy Waters. You're very familiar with Muddy. Yeah. Muddy's a genius, was a genius. Now, you play blues as well. I do. From your perspective, what is it that makes Muddy Waters a genius? Well, I, I, like B.B. Like King, you know, he's just uh, he's just one of those trailblazers. He and Willie Dixon are just trail, trailblazers. And uh, Muddy had his own sound. You know, he had his own thing going on. You can... You can cover it, but you can't duplicate it, you know, and that's the kind of thing. I saw, I was, used to see a band called the Kinsey Report, and their father, uh, Lester Big Daddy Kinsey, was a a friend of Muddy Waters, but his show was basically, when you went to see Big Daddy Kinsey, he was covering Muddy, you know, a lot of those guys, even guys that weren't much younger than Waddy, or Muddy, that came to town, you know, these guys were, uh, they were still covering his stuff. They really looked up to him, Muddy, you know, as the Stones did. You know, a lot of those guys, they were just, uh, he was a talented guitarist for the time, you know, because nobody was doing what they were doing, like the slide and all that kind of stuff, that he was, the way he was doing the slide. And nobody nobody was doing that at the time, you know, except for Robert Johnson would be like yeah. the only guy. So. And he was a genius as well, in my opinion. What I'm interested in is, if we compare uh, a song done by two different artists, I think most people would know George Thorogood's cover of Who Do You Love. When you take that song and compare it to what Muddy Waters did with the song, not only is it his song, but what is the particular element that you think Muddy could bring to it that another person doesn't? Um, feeling? There's, there's kind of a grit there. Yeah, there's that's a that's kind of like the whole blues thing, you know. You look at uh, I mean, there's a lot of great players out there back then and now. I mean, you look at guys like Eddie Van Halen. Any guitar player out there thinks oh, Eddie Van Halen's got Eddie Van Halen can play a lot of notes, but he to me he doesn't play with a lot of feeling. Uh-huh. A lot of blues guys play with a lot of feeling. George Thorogood, eh, he's a good player, but I don't I don't think he he's lived the feeling. If you follow my drift on that. Got it. You know, and I think that's probably the difference. So it's kind of an intangible element that finds its way into the performance. Yeah, it's, it's a gut heart thing. It's not a just pulling it out and laying it out there kind of thing. I used to work with a woman and uh, she and I used to get catfish together, right? Cajun style catfish. And she used to say, you can taste the mud in it. <laughs> <laughs> when you can taste the mud in it, it's mm-hmm. good. Yeah, right. And I would think that relates to what you're saying yeah. as well, that yeah. there's there's kind of this thing that's there that someone, as you said, who, who's lived the experience brings to it. Yeah. 
That's the difference. I have a buddy that refers to that as stank. Stank. <laughs> Put your stank on it. Yeah. All right, so uh, Muddy Waters. In the movie, we see Waters recruit harmonica player Little Walter on the streets of Chicago and then go into the Macamba to show up musicians who were hired to perform that night. Leonard Chess then seeks out Waters to record him on the Chess label, which presumably was the first time Waters had been recorded. But we talked earlier, he originally recorded on Aristocrat before right. coming to Chess. Right. And we also talked about the timeline with Little Walters. Little Walters wasn't quite with him yet mm-hmm. uh, in his band. But you you talked about the Headhunters. Tell us about the Headhunters. Um, that was that was a thing. And I, I'd recently seen a documentary, I can't remember which one it was, um, that said that Muddy Waters and uh, Little Walter and those guys would go in there and just kind of be humbly approach the guys on stage and ask if they could sit in and play, and then they'd get up there and blow them off the stage, and it did create that friction. I'd seen that. I, I, I can't recall what the documentary is at the time, but I, I'd seen something about that. I mean, like within the past month, that that was a, a common thing they did around town. But you know, you can only get around town so many times before everyone knows your game. And I was going to ask, that couldn't have happened too many times. No, as soon as they come walking in, I'm sure that's all figured out. It'd be like, oh, here come these guys again, <laughs> you know. And, uh, yeah, so it probably didn't last long. You know, he would have run out of opportunities to keep doing that. So he had to get his shit together, pardon me, to, to, uh, you know, and get the band together up and running, you know, for live performance because everybody was going to know their game at that point around town. And there's a nice little touch I read about, which is not only would they blow the other band off stage, but then they would announce where their next show was going to be held from the stage. (laughs) Adding insult to injury. So the, I I wonder how successful that was for them. I mean, mean, it definitely makes a name for you. Oh yeah, in both directions, (laughs) you know, it'll launch you. But then you know, then the musicians in the area are probably like, "Watch out for these guys." You know, you know, I'm sure there was a lot of animosity about that too. Yeah, playing that game. So, but that's that's the music biz, man. And they were fresh. You know, it's like. Um, they came to town. There wasn't a lot of what they were doing going on in town, not on that level. I mean, there was, but they because they were going on stage and playing, but not on Muddy's level. You know, they were a quality act in spite of the drinking and walking in there drunk and cutting heads, so to speak. But um, there was, they were. Once you're, you know, you get out there and you're better than, you know, the cream rises to the top. You know, and it, that would help launch you through town, and that's what would make it easier for them, him to keep working. As as a live performing musician, so it's one thing to make yourself known. It's another thing to make yourself known when you actually have the talent to back it up. Right, you know, there's famous and then there's infamous. You know, and they were infamous for cutting heads, but and I don't think it, like again, I said it wasn't. I don't think it worked in their favor 100 percent of the time. You know, I think bad news travels fast, so there's probably a lot of musicians that were tearing him up too off. You know, behind his back, but he persevered. Because he was talented, you know. He was. He definitely was. And in the movie, he's shown as bringing a lot of artists through the door of chess, which was largely true because he did bring Little Walter in with him as well. And Little Walter is, uh, I don't know if you would call him infamous because he had talent to back up what he did as well. Yeah. But he was a tragic figure in the movie. Oh, no doubt. He was a loose cannon. He was a loose cannon. But he went through quite a bit of shit, too, because I was reading that... Uh, his parents divorced within the first year he was born, uh, and he left home at the age of 12. And oh, That's a hard life there. Man. And started to make his own way. So uh, he, he definitely went through some stuff before making it to Chicago. Yeah, because in the scene where Leonard calls him into the control room to tell him that his mother's passed, he's just kind of looks around for a second, and he's like, this is my mama, and he holds up his harp. Yeah, yeah, and in the alley with Muddy, he makes yeah. the comment about not going to her funeral. He's like, "That's your mama, boy." Yeah, exactly. And he seems more concerned with his groove being messed up. Well, it, yeah, he said uh, that if he left at that time, uh, that somebody would come in and take his place. That was he's afraid of. Somebody else is going to roll and cut my head. Was his reference? So he, you know, that would happen too. You know, a yeah. lot of musicians are. There's not that much loyalty. You know pretty much in anything these days you know but back then you know if you needed a player at the time you you grab the next guy in line 
So yeah. I could see his point being a musician. Which, in, in hindsight, is hard to imagine because little Walter had the only harmonica instrumental song to hit number one on the Billboard chart. Mm. He also had more chart hits than anyone else in the blues stable in chess. Right. Which, if you were to think of someone immediately, you might think Muddy Waters. Yeah. Or maybe even Howlin' Wolf. Right. But I definitely would not have thought that little Walter would be the one who had the most chart hits. Yeah, he was his own worst enemy, though. It's probably what... Well, he wasn't as recognizable in spite of that fact. Yeah. Now, in the movie, they show him as being the first person to use a microphone with the harmonica. But that wasn't actually true. There were other harp players who were using a microphone. Uh, What the movie does not call out is Little Walter was the first artist to really use distortion as an effect in what he did. Because he would just overcrank the amp. Yeah. But he used it as an element of the performance. Uh, I don't know. Were, were guitarists, were gu- electric guitar players using distortion at that time? Was yeah, Low Walter of those, ahead of them? Most of those old Fender amps, <clears throat> they were single channel amps. And it was just basically a clean tone. When you, uh, when you turn it up past a certain level, it has what they, what they call a natural breakup. And that would have been the natural distortion that the amp provides. So when you overdrive the amp, that's where you get that. So guitarists were already doing that, and little Walter just brought it in the harp plane? Uh, I'd say the harp players were probably using it before the guitar players. Like, a lot of the guitar players had that glassy, clean kind of sound, mm-hmm. except for when they were playing slide, because, you know, if you try and play slide clean, in my in my experience, you can hear every little imperfection. When you overdrive it a little, it has a, has a cooler tone like a harp. But, you know, harp was, the overdriven harp was a cool sound. Yeah, it was. Yeah, it was. Now, most people don't know that little Walter was also a guitarist, as well as a band leader. No. Oh. Because most people just view him as being with Muddy's band or mm-hmm. or doing juke and doing uh, his solo stuff. But he was a guitarist and a band leader when he first came to Chicago and before he joined Muddy's band. But he resumed the role of band leader when he signed with Checker Records, which was a chess subsidiary, and had a hit with the song Juke. So they show him recording Juke while at chess, but that wasn't quite the case. He recorded it with Checker. Mm -hmm. There's a scene in the movie where little Walter drives his car into the window of the chess studio. Mm -hmm. And when we went on the tour, Manchester made a a comment about this. Uh, And in the movie, what we see is he says it's the wrong color. He needs a new car. But I don't recall if the movie shows what happened. No, I think it stops right there. And it shows uh, the receptionist girl just kind of having a surprised look on her face. So supposedly, right after he demanded a new car, Leonard gave him the money for it. Right. So he took the car, he drove through the window, and he drove to the bank. And instead of parking in the parking lot or parking on the street... He left the car in the middle of the street, backing up traffic. What a guy. And just calmly walked into the bank. Arrogance at his finest. And did what he had to do. (laughs) Uh, He was known for having a short temper and was prone to self-destructive behavior, some of which is dramatized in the film. Oh, yeah. Such as the bit with the cops. Yeah, provoking the cops back in those days was probably a major no-no. Yeah. And I'm sure that they... You know, took a little artistic liberty in the violence, the brutality of the, on the police's behalf as well. You know, I don't know if it would have been grabbing somebody by the head and smashing their face on the hood of the car several times, but um, yeah, provoking the police was probably not a good idea. But I think the biggest liberty taken is little Walter shooting a man dead in that, br- in broad daylight. <laughs> that said, that whose name was Little Walter? Exactly. <laughs> For being Little Walter and stealing his money. Yeah, yeah that was uh, I was. I was waiting for to find out if that was factual by any means or not, because you you don't just shoot somebody in the face in front of a bunch of witnesses and jump in a car and drive away and with no repercussion, you know. Yeah, yeah, and there's no record that little Walter did that, so that was definitely some heavy dramatic license that was taken there. And lastly, little Walter did not die in the arms of Muddy Waters' wife Geneva. Hmm. Uh, yeah. Well, that made that made for a good movie, but like a lot of the movie. <laughs> But Little Walter also toured uh, Europe in 67. 
and he came back from a tour when he was back and performing in Chicago he was in an altercation uh, the details are a little fuzzy about what the altercation was about but he wound up getting a beating again mm-hmm. and he actually died in his sleep in his girlfriend's bed who uh, and the the official cause of death was that it was a blood clot uh, on the coroner's report and the thought is it was just the result of the damage he did to his body mm-hmm. over the years he was his own worst enemy it yeah sure seemed like that he most definitely was well he was probably dealing with a lot from his life as well yeah he just didn't process it as yeah there's no means of uh no one to talk to in the day probably you know yeah and or the availability of somebody to talk to to help you with that yeah yeah that was a sad it was a sad story about him anyhow and they also show muddy waters uh being surprised by his friend's death but in real life muddy waters when he was told of little walter's death said little walter was dead 10 years before he died yeah i'm sure he probably saw it coming along you know miles away that he was a live by the sword die by the sword kind of guy yeah again it made for great you know made for a great movie to have him get all emotional when he ran upstairs and you could hear him crying in the bathroom at the top of the stairs yeah i suppose it simplified things you didn't have to introduce a girlfriend character right right so and it completed the circle with him in geneva which was started when he was drunk and hitting on her yeah yeah so from a storytelling perspective it makes sense but yeah, in real life, he died in his girlfriend's bed. Hmm. Now we come to my favorite character in the movie. Got to be Etta. Uh, no, Howlin' Wolf. Oh, Howlin' Wolf. Favorite okay. character in the movie is Howlin' Wolf. And there is a lot that they got right about Howlin' Wolf. Uh, from the beginning, though, when they say how he got his name in the movie, they say it was from a dead man who rose up from the grave, apparently, in the Willie Dixon voiceover. In real life, Howlin' Wolf got his name because his grandfather used to tell stories of wolves in the area. And when he was a child and there was thunder and lightning, he ran upstairs. Howlin' and his family started calling him Howlin' Wolf. Interesting. Now, the movie shows him arriving at Chess in his own truck, and they show him being business savvy as well because Leonard Chess offers him an advance. And his response is, just pay me what you owe me. So he wasn't buying into the trappings that a lot of the blues artists who never had success, now suddenly they have Cadillacs being offered to them, they have nice clothes being offered to them. Uh, He wasn't falling into that trap at all. Yeah, he wasn't tempted by the rags to riches situation. Which I find even more interesting because he was largely illiterate until the age of 40. Hmm. And at the age of 40, he got his GED, he got his high school equivalency, And then he started studying business and accounting. And he was apparently quite a good businessman as well because he really just kept his stuff together, had a wife, two kids, and just lived in a modest home and drove a modest car. Beautiful. He just just seemed to do it right. Uh, He was born Chester Burnett in 1910. He was a farmer. And when he came up to Chicago, he already knew of Muddy Waters. Mm-hmm. And he knew they were both from Mississippi. So he thought there was a connection there. So he looked up Muddy Waters, and Muddy Waters is the person who brought him to chess. Which, in the movie, they show that Howlin' Wolf is just there. Yeah. And Muddy is introduced to him by Leonard Chess. Yeah, it seemed like there was a lot of uh, friction between the two. That was the picture they painted. Yeah. A lot of friction between the two of them right off the, right off the get-go. And apparently there wasn't because Howlin' Wolf stayed at Muddy's house Mm -hmm. when he first got here and Muddy helped him out. But they did have a rivalry that began. And part of it had to do with Hubert Sumlin. Oh, yeah. Getting it, stealing him to put him on stage with Muddy. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. So what do you know about that? I really don't know much about that per se. Um, Again, I'd seen a... I think it was the 2007 Crossroads. I actually went to that show. Um, and then I got the DVD for that. And there is a little side thing where Hubert was telling that story. But he didn't elaborate because it was, I think it was just, he didn't really want to 
look like he had jumped ship. You know, he didn't want to make it look like he had jumped ship and played with Muddy and got in trouble for it. But there was a mention of it. You know, he just kind of played it off. And that's probably the extent of what I would know about it or have heard about it. But, yeah, it existed. <laughs> I, you know, I wouldn't imagine if you were somebody's side man, that's probably not a good thing to do. And uh, But I guess if uh, Muddy was going to be vindictive to get a jab back at, at Holland Wolf, well, I guess that's where you go. That would be like the musical jugular if that's what you were going to go for, you know. So, But I, I would have thought that, again, as a side man, it's probably not a place you step into. You know, you probably have, you have to have loyalty some, to some extent. Now, a nice little piece of trivia is we can actually see Hubert Sumlin yes. in the movie. Yes, next to the character who plays Hubert Sumlin. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, um, yes, Muddy Waters stole Hubert Sumlin from Howlin' Wolf. Howlin' Wolf brought Sumlin back into his band, but not in the way it's shown in the movie. Because in the movie, he goes into the club uh, and he shoots a gun. And he basically takes someone Pulls back. him right off stage. Pulls him right off stage. Here's what happened in real life. Hubert was planning to leave Muddy's band and let his intentions become known. The band's pianist, the raw-tempered Otis Spann, didn't take kindly to that and came after him swinging a chain. In a panic, Hubert got Muddy in a headlock, and he told Spann to back off. He dragged Muddy over to a phone, had Muddy on the phone while in the headlock and told him to call Howlin' Wolf and ask for help. <laughs> when Wolf showed up, he told Span to back off and Hubert and Howlin' Wolf took Hubert back under his wing. Hmm. Well, that's, that's a nice tidbit to know. Yeah. So on to Chuck Berry, who's probably the, the most well-known. Mm-hmm maybe other than Etta James. But Barry traveled to Chicago in 1955 and met Muddy Waters. Waters recommended that he contact Leonard Chess at Chess Records, and that's where Chuck Berry recorded Maybelline. We talked about the Man Act that was presented in the film, where uh, during there were two trials and appeals before he went to prison over that time span. And he was given a year and a half. So <laughs> 1959 to... Uh, 1961 were the trials and appeals, and then his actual sentence was probably 61 into 63, hmm. because he, that's when he was released. And Barry left Chess in 1966 and went to Mercury Records, but returned to Chess in 1970. And I don't think there's a whole lot that they got wrong on Chuck Berry in the film. No. I, I think he was shown as being more good-natured than he probably was in real life. I'd, I'd heard stories that he wasn't wasn't a real nice guy, but I, I'm sure he was a. <laughs> I don't know how to say this. I guess he would be like a pleasant guy, even if it was like uh, sarcastic in a sarcastic way. I guess, like when he walks in and the guy says, "I thought you were a country act." I mean, again, in, in the movie, he says, "I thought you were a country act," and he just looked at him and he said, "Yeah." He goes, "I need to see your ID," and he shows him the ID. He said, "Well, we have country music here, but you're not playing here." And then he reaches up with that big old smile and uh -huh. he looks at the poster and he rips it off the wall and goes, my ID. And he walked out the door. So I, I, I would think he was probably a lot like that. Again, you know, probably pleasant, but, you know, sarcastic but, about it. But you know where you stand with him. Yeah. 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 I mean, if you, you know, I told you the story. We can't probably tell on a podcast, but um, about him. I, I played in a band with a fellow who had been John Prine's bass player for 15 years, and he played in another band, and they were going to play a Chicago Bulls halftime. And uh, the Chicago Bulls had hired Chuck Berry to come play in between quarters. And uh, the guitar player in that band, as like a lot of us, you know, the Chuck Berry and the Beatles were like, those are the guys that got us playing guitars, you know. And this guy said, hey, you were my hero. And he, the writer said that you couldn't be on stage with Chuck no guitar players could be on stage with Chuck and uh he just said hey I would just love to be on stage I won't even plug in my guitar and Chuck's response was not pleasant and it, it didn't end well but uh because he at that point he was a pretty bitter guy he was a pretty bitter guy but uh I think that's the way he rolled on out you know he was bitter by the way he was you know treated uh for the times he 
been to prison. I'd read something in Rolling Stone about Chuck Berry, too, and I don't know if he'd only been in prison one time. I think he might have been in there more than one time. Yeah. So, But, yeah, I mean, for the most part, he was probably a pleasant with a sharp tongue, I guess would be the way to put it. I don't know. I think that would be fair. Yeah. Uh, and now that brings us to Etta James. Ah. Etta James, played by Beyonce. Yeah, she did a good job. She did a good job. You know, I was surprised how dark she went. I, I I never thought I'd see Beyonce in something that is that dark. Yeah, she was definitely a little foxy Cleopatra. No. <laughs> Referencing Austin Powers. Powers. Gold member, yeah. No, she definitely was not. And mm. I thought she did a really, really good job in it. But Etta James, when she found out Beyonce would be playing her in this movie... Etta James' response is that she has a hill to climb because Etta ain't been no saint. Oh. Well, she must have done her research. Like you say, she definitely found the darkness of that character. Yeah. And I didn't realize that Etta had a junk problem, amongst other things. She was in treatment quite often out in Tarzana. No. Out in California. You know, it's she had issues, too, as a kid. She had definite issues. And, yeah. And the movie alludes to them. Yeah. She says her mother was a whore. Uh, her mother had her at the age of 14, and her mother was known to be with several different men at the same time. Minnesota Fats, really? Uh, Minnesota Fats has not been verified. Yeah, was, I, w- I wouldn't. <laughs> that's why I'm saying really. It, it was speculated by Etta James, which is why I'm surprised that the movie seems to solidify it with Etta James playing pool. Yeah. And she doesn't say she learned from her father. Yeah. But they definitely give you the impression that the reason she can play pool so well is because of her father, Minnesota Fats. But the movie also presents there was no real relationship taking place between them. So how did she get the pool skills? It's like a border collie. You you know. (laughs) You know how to herd when you're born, but uh, you're not a pool player as soon as you're born. No, not at all. Not at all. I think the most egregious liberty taken with uh, any of the artists that are portrayed is probably the relationship between Etta James and Leonard Chess. I didn't see that, you know, while watching the movie, even the second time around. I I was like, really? That line got crossed? And then to find out that it probably didn't get crossed. Yeah, and the reason why we think it probably didn't get crossed is, well, there's a couple reasons. Number one, Etta James wrote in her autobiography, Rage to Survive, nothing about any type of relationship with Leonard Chess, uh, or Phil Chess for that matter. While at the same time, she talked very openly about relationships she had, and she was very open about her addiction problems Mm -hmm. in the autobiography. The other reason why we think that there was no relationship that took place is because Marshall Chess, who was Leonard's son and helped to run the company in the 70s, uh, was personal friends with Etta James when this movie was developed. Mm Mm-hmm. And he went to her, and he asked if there was any truth to the uh, affair. And Edda James' response was, your father kissed me on the cheek once. So we have nothing at all coming from Edda James to verify there was any affair. And it seems that that was just a liberty that was taken to add some drama to the story. Well, it did that. Well, most definitely did that. Especially during the scene where she's at the house with nothing in, in it. Uh, Phil and Muddy go because she didn't show up for a radio interview or she was yes. listening on the radio and then uh, they go to her house and find her passed out on the floor and then Muddy goes back to get his wife and then they come back and they show Phil Chess laying on top of her after they had shared a kiss and touching and that kind of thing and then they walk in and kind of catch him in the I kind of found that as it, it took a little too far I guess I mean I, I, don't, I don't understand why they did it more than once that wasn't like the only scene because there was the scene uh, in the studio when he was like touching her, mm-hmm. you know, kind of overstepping. And and, um, and then the time that um, Muddy beats the three girls, or the three girls come knocking on the hotel room uh-huh, door, yeah. and they're and they're both in the in the room, and you know they're partying. And then uh, Leonard walks out, and uh, Muddy's like, "Hey," and he's like, "Not a married man." Uh, like, why would why would it be different? Yeah. You know, I mean, if he was a family man and he loved his wife kind of thing, you know, what about her, you know, that that did that? But, yeah, I, I kind of thought, why did they overdo it? Probably because it was Beyonce playing the role. <laughs> Beyonce playing the role also uh, 
if you just look at Phil and Leonard Chess, there there wasn't a whole lot of drama taking place with them at all. Right. They they are not very interesting characters. No. In real life. Well, that's probably part of it too. They probably yeah. had to like embellish a little just to make them a little more exciting a character. Yeah, absolutely. Talking about the liberties taken in the movie, there's some that for story it seems they did. Uh, uh, unfortunately, they couldn't delve into the characters as much as I think I would have liked them to. I, I think I would have liked to see characters, more time for characters to be fleshed out. Well, it's like you said, it probably would have been a miniseries at that point. It would have been like an episodic thing, kind of. Which, and I think if people knew, had that connection with the chess label that they might have with Motown or to a lesser extent Stax. Right then I think that could be possible. But I think that's just the, the continual uphill climb of the blues in America, unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, if you were to grade the movie on facts, A through F, what would you give it? On facts? On facts. We rated it on entertainment at 3.5. If you're to rate it on facts on a A through F grade scale. C? A C? Maybe a C plus. Yeah, I, I'd go C. I'd go C on it. Uh, watching it a third time, I did notice that there there are a lot of little drop-ins of fact, especially on the Howling Wolf discussion mm-hmm. when his characters first introduced, that if you if you know the real story, you can pick up and say, okay, they got that right, and they got this piece right. And there's a lot of little things they got right, like... Um, period guitars to a certain extent mm-hmm. but there's other places where they took great liberty so i think c would be fair mm-hmm. all right and most people wouldn't call them out on it anyhow you know most fact checkers wouldn't have really called them out on some of the things i caught you know but again i'm a musician so i, I that's the kind of crap i look at you know yeah but um yeah i mean i, I guess if uh if there was more fact checking going on before the production of that movie there probably would have been it probably would have been three hours long man to get it right you know so probably but uh, it was entertaining nonetheless it was entertaining and i think if cadillac records is where uh one may have started on being introduced to chess records and to some of the great artists that came out of there uh i think that's okay but what would you recommend as a next step You mean going from that point? Yeah. If, if someone said, oh, I'm now interested in chess records, where do you think someone should start on the chess catalog? Should they start with an autobiography on someone? Where do you think someone should go next? Because the tour. The tour? Yeah. Oh. I, w- I mean, uh, yeah, I would go to the tour again. I mean, it's it's not like it's Disneyland, but it's, you know, I'm a blues guy, so to me that was, you know, that was extreme. It was like going to Memphis. I went the first time I went to Memphis. It was like, there's just something about it. Like the history of Memphis, you know? And that's, if I were, if I were going to get it, get into it, it would probably be the tour than the catalog. Cause the catalog is going to tell you who all the artists are. And then you can start branching out and, and then follow every artist. That would probably be my Avenue, but that's just me. Okay. Nice. Very nice. And, uh, and the tour we should talk about a little bit because I don't think people listening might have context, but, Chess Records is, at the moment, trying to become alive and well and producing music again. Yes, it's actually called uh, Blues Heaven now. It's uh, the Willie Dixon Foundation. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I would I would love to see it be up and running as a, as a functioning studio again. I, but I think it's, without donations, it's, you know, that's what's going to be, that's what's going to be the timeline for that place to open back up. And need, that's why I would say go to the tour. You know, this way you're doing something good too. You're donating to the cause, and you get it up and running, which is going to bring people in. I don't know what they would charge studio time, you know, to also keep it going, or if they're going to donate the time for people who don't have the money to do it. But you know, it's it's a piece of history, man. It does, it can't just go away. It just can't go away. Yeah, and and we have the Rolling Stones back in it at yeah. this point. They're they're making certain efforts uh-huh. in order to back the foundation because. Yeah. They've benefited quite a bit, and they're big lovers of the blues and mm-hmm. blues music. And uh, there, there are some albums out there where a certain percentage yeah, goes to the blues. Ronnie Woods donated paintings, 
you know, mm-hmm. all bringing money in. So, yeah, like that's that for me. That would be the start. The start would be to go there because it's a good cause, and you're gonna <laughs> you're gonna get school like you never were schooled. I mean, you didn't when we walked in there, and he said, "Do you know who the receptionist was?" And there was the girl who worked the counter. And then he played the song on the Bluetooth speaker, and it was Loving You by Minnie Ripperton. I would have never thought in a million years she was a receptionist at Chess Records. Never in a million years would I put that together. No. No. And that stayed with you. You've mentioned that a few times since well, the tour. Because he even said a lot of the people that were here weren't just, you said they were like all musicians. Like they were all in the music scene, you know, whatever level, you know, they were at. Regardless, they were there because probably because they weren't getting paid a lot and they did it for the love of it and to get their foot in the door because you're going to rub elbows with all these musicians. You know, you got a better shot of being a working musician, rubbing elbows with these working musicians. So, you know, she was no fool. No. But, you know, that's and then I remember he even said that um, the actual artists would be in the back stuffing records and envelopes. you know, to get their, their product out. You know, so it was like nobody was a prima donna about it. No, you know, they were all in there for the cause of just, you know, these artists were trying to get their music out. So they would show up and put their records in envelopes and that kind of thing in the warehouse. I don't know if you remember him saying that, but, you know, I was like, because most of them are just like prima donnas would think I'm never going to do that. You're out of your mind thinking I would do that. True. But a lot of them came from work. Yeah. You, you know, I mean, if uh, if the background for many of them were as coming from the south and being sharecroppers yeah it's not like they weren't unfamiliar with work so oh, no I, so, I, so to come and take on that extra role beyond just making the music in order to get your record out there in order to get the name out there that's the work you have to do right and i don't even think you know i think a lot of what they don't show as well is they probably weren't just 24 7 musicians where they're just lounging around especially when they first come here mm-hmm. like i said they Everybody filtered, you know, those greats filtered up from, like, Mississippi and then through Memphis and come to Chicago because Chicago had industry. Yeah. Steel, you know, there was all the steel mills were in Gary and in Chicago. These guys were coming here for work. Yeah. You know, they came here for work, and then they, you know, trying to get their careers off the ground as well. So it's not like they were just coming here and hanging out at the studio. I'm sure that they had to make a living still when yeah. they came to Chicago. You know, so, yeah, getting your hands dirty and being a blue-collar guy was really nothing to these guys. But again, like I said, it's you know it's whatever it takes to get it done. Where a lot of times that doesn't happen anymore. Everybody wants to put it off on someone else, you know. Yeah, and uh, and something that uh, I'd like to promote getting done is obviously the foundation being thriving. The yeah. the Will, Willie Dixon Blues Heaven Foundation. Yeah. And see Chess Records recording again. Yeah. Uh, so if you're in the Chicago area, definitely make some time to go get a tour over at Chess Records. It's it's a great tour. And uh, and I think the greatest experience on that tour was sitting in that same physical space where Chuck Berry recorded, where Muddy Waters recorded, where Howard Etta Wolf James recorded, Singh. Etta James Singh. At last. Because because the following morning we were sitting on your deck here, <sighs> and at last came on the playlist, and we could hear the ambient echo of that room that we had heard the day before in person. Yeah. We could hear the production on it, and we could make that connection. Again, like I said, it's it's no Disneyland to you out there, but to, to me, it would be my Disneyland because I'm a blues guy. When I met, went to Memphis, that's the first thing I said to my wife when I got home. I said, man, that's my big boy's Disneyland. I loved Memphis. <laughs> <laughs> and then when I, you know, and when we went on that tour, you know, that was, to me, that was equally as cool as Memphis because yeah. because of the fact that it's, you know, it's it's part of the whole run from the south up here, you know. And, uh, that's, you know, I would, I would suggest going to it. Don't miss it. And I thought it was really cool when we were in there that those three different young, you know, bands that came through there from Orange County, let's go ahead and give them a plug. Wild Records, right? Yeah. I can't remember the band names, but because it was three different bands, but uh, I don't think they gave the names because they just said we're three different bands, but look up Wild Records. Yeah. And, uh, it was very interesting to see that their interest was sparked by that. Because they, yeah. I mean, those guys were probably young enough to be my grandkids. You know, that's the way I see it. They're probably young enough to be my grandkids, and uh, I, I was. It was good to see that. It was good to see it. You know? it, it was, and uh, we met the director of the foundation as well. I'm mm-hmm. blanking on her name, unfortunately. I am too. She was uh, very nice. I'm gonna have to look it up and yeah. put it in the 
outro for this episode. But she was very nice. In fact, uh, I think she asked about their music and she was listening to a little bit of it. Yeah, she was pulling it up on YouTube and or whatever, like Spotify, whatever they were uh, put their, their, their product out on. Yeah, she was interested. It wasn't like she was just going through the motions. She was actually interested. Yeah. And she was helping them find, because they asked about blues clubs in the area, and she actually ponied up a list of blues clubs for these guys to go out. And like Again, like that was, to me, that was pretty refreshing to see that, that generation into the blues. Yeah. You know, to come up for that, I, you know. That was part of making my day, too, when they all come rolling in, because they all seem like nice people. Yeah. Yeah, they all seemed like a nice gr- uh, group of people that rolled in, because they rolled in what, probably... Uh, the last three quarters of the tour that yeah. we'd already gone through. Yeah, they were a little late. Yeah. So. But no, that was refreshing. I would I would recommend it if you come to Chicago. Absolutely. And who knows, maybe they'll end up recording on the chess label. Yes. Hopefully they'll be up and running. Which would be fantastic. I think their goal was uh, like within the next year, year and a half, they were hoping to uh, have that the, the control room put back together. I thought it's what uh, that fellow manchester had mentioned well they already had the acoustical material and shore is donating the microphone so they're definitely on their way but they i don't think were allowed to drop the group that they kind of yeah no that, don't do that yeah no 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 well, if you go on the tour maybe they'll mention it but you might want to look for kind of a big group who might, they've been around a little while might be recording at chess in the near future and that's where i'm going to leave it yeah but uh but most definitely Support Chess Records. Uh, as you can tell, we're big fans. And if Cadillac Records is your introduction to it, there is so much more to delve into, and you'll find it well worth your while. Yes. All right, Joel, thank you very much for doing this. I appreciate it. No problem. Thank you for having me. Now is the time when we fact check ourselves. We come to these discussions prepared, but sometimes the conversation takes us in a direction we weren't prepared for. And we end up discussing the topic and share less than accurate information, or we misspeak, or we just completely draw a blank during the conversation. For instance, uh, I confused a few things when Joel and I were talking about Muddy Waters, and I alluded that Who Do You Love is Muddy Waters' song. It's actually Bo Diddley's song. However, there is another movie out about chess records called Who Do You Love? It came out about the same time as Cadillac Records. And the song Who Do You Love was later performed on a recording, and the writing credit says that it's by Bo Diddley, Little Walter, and Muddy Waters. So I'm going to give myself partial credit on that one, even though I goofed it up in the conversation. However, to make up for it, I was able to find a copy of the version of Who Do You Love, which is performed by Bo Diddley, Little Walter, and Muddy Waters, and it is a fantastic version. If you want to take a listen to it, go to our website, biopicsmostlysuck.com, and go to the page for Cadillac Records, and you'll be able to find it there. In another part of our discussion, I completely blanked on the name of the actor who portrayed Howlin' Wolf in the movie Cadillac Records. That actor was the amazing Eamon Walker, and he just did an incredible job with portraying the essence of the man who was known as Howlin' Wolf. I also drew a blank on the director of the Willie Dixon Blues Heaven Foundation, whom Joel and I had the pleasure to meet during our visit. Janine Judge runs the show over there. And her staff that we met all seem to be good people who love the music and the mission of the foundation. Well, there you have it. Cadillac Records. We gave the film a rating of three and a half stars for entertainment. For the truth, we gave it a C. And the C on the biopics mostly sucks truth meter means edging towards fiction, truth, and fiction exist in the same space. They got a lot of little parts right about some of the characters, and some of those parts are really buried in there, especially when you read the history of Howlin' Wolf. Once you do that, you can start to pick out those facts in the movie. However, it really went askew with the relationship between Etta James and Leonard Chess, which just flatly never happened. Nevertheless, 
If Cadillac Records is your first introduction to Chess Records, I hope you get hooked. I hope you explore the artists from the Chess Records catalog. I hope you take Joel's advice during our conversation and take the tour if you're ever out in the Chicago area. Nevertheless, Chess Records, run by the Chess Brothers, produce some incredible music which stays with us forever. Go enjoy it. I want to thank the Willie Dixon Blues Heaven Foundation for their hospitality during our tour. I want to thank Joel Tarpinian for his hospitality as I was hanging out there in Illinois with him and his lovely wife, Kathy. I also want to thank you for taking a little bit of time out of your day to listen to the podcast here. Let us know how we're doing. Go to biopicsmostlysuck.com and send us a message. Let us know if there's a movie we can take a look at to look for the facts. Take care, everyone. Bye.